صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today, we're joined by a, another Pal-Lebo, the best sort of mix you can possibly have, <laughs> Dr. Lina Kulayelet, who is a Lebanese-Australian PhD scholar at the School of Culture, History and Language, the College of Asia and the Pacific at the ANU, the Australian National University. Lina completed two years of participant observation and language studies in Korea, between 2013 and 15. Lena has spent almost 10 years in and out of Korea, and she's a Korean expert. She is a PhD. She also was the recipient of the 2014 Prime Minister Australia Asia Endeavour Award, and her research was funded then by the Australian Government through the Australia Korea Foundation of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, her interests are in transnational social movements, anti-nuclear movements, anti-base movements, religious activism, And especially, of course, because she's a Pelbo, that's half Pel, half Lebo, Pelbo, um, <laughs> although she's a quarter Pel, three quarters Lebo, uh, which must make her super special. Of course, Palestine. Good morning, Lena. How are you? Good. Thanks so much, Nasser, for, for having me on this show. No, it's fantastic. A real pleasure. And I only just met you recently. You're a, a dear friend of one of our dear friends, Nur Mansour. Yes. <laughs> Now, Lena, before we get into career and transnational social movements in Palestine, Tell us, you're a Beiruti, you're born in Beirut, how you, uh, a little bit of your Palestine story and then how you got here. But let's go with the Palestine story first. Okay. So um, my grandfather is from Yaffa um, and he was um, basically kicked out of his land in 1948, like a lot of Palestinians. And um, he moved to Lebanon um, and met my grandmother and married her um, in Beirut. And um, then he fled the war in Lebanon um, and went to Kuwait and lived there for a very long time. And then he fled the war in Kuwait, became again a refugee and passed away as a refugee in, in England, in London, after his long journey, um, getting away from being displaced and getting away from armed violence. So that's my Palestinian connection. I dream about going back one day and... Um, and visiting the town where my grandfather grew, uh, him and his family. I only know bits and pieces of his story because uh, because of the trauma. Um, mm. My family try, not, every time I ask a lot of questions, they try to avoid it, and it's a painful history, so they don't want to go there. Um, but I know that I know a few stories about my grandfather before 1948 and his family coming to Lebanon with trucks of batikh, of watermelon. So they used to um, bring batikh from Yaffa to Beirut and sell them in Beirut. <laughs> um, and, that's, and, and that's how he met my grandmother before 1948 and the, and the family. Um, 
Yeah, so I guess. But so did they get married before 1948 or after? No, no, no. After, after 1948. Yeah. After the Nakba. And, and has the uh, love for watermelon gone through to her, his granddaughter? <laughs> no, actually. Really? When they, when, they came to, when they came to Lebanon, they had lost everything. So um, they came with the clothes that they were wearing, so they course, didn't yeah. have anything else. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't love watermelon. Lena. Yeah, the love, of course. It's in the blood. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not really a Palestinian unless you eat watermelon <laughs> with cheese. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. White cheese. <laughs> now, Lena, so you were born in Beirut. And from there, I mean, your your accent is British a bit, yeah? No, I actually grew up in Beirut. And um, other than the moments that we were displaced as refugees because of the Lebanese war, um, I grew up in Beirut until 2005. I lived okay. there. Um, so I finished my um, all my schooling in Beirut um, at the Catholic St. Joseph School. Um, and uh, French missionary school in, in, in West Beirut. And, um, and I did my education at the Lebanese American University. I did an undergrad in psychology. Um, and I only left for my postgraduate studies after that. So other than the few stints of running away from uh, war yeah. um, to Syria, to Cyprus, Kuwait a few times, um, to Syria lots of times, and being displaced internally lots of times. I was born in 81, so it was in the middle of the um, mm -hmm. civil, um, war. civil war, but also the in 1982 was the um, Israeli invasion. Right, and, yeah. yeah, Our listeners are tuned to Orientalism, Western imperialism, you know, and the sort of, they are immune to the propaganda of what they see on the TV, that we've all got to sponsor a Ukrainian and send some money to Ukraine. One of the things that most people don't understand is the challenge in a war, internal displacement. You know, when you hear the tanks are coming or you hear the, the bombs rattling around you, it's not a little thing. Do you remember? Can you talk through one of those <laughs> yeah. without triggering anything, please? Only if you can pay for a counseling session for me, Nasser, afterwards. I mean, it is something that we, we, we carry with us, you know, these scars we carry, I carry with me all the time. There's, I don't think there's a day that passes that I don't think about that or it affects my life in, in a way or another. But yeah, war is, is horrifying. I mean, the reason why I do the work that I do is because I'm a pacifist activist. I'm against wars and I'm, I'm against armed violence. Um, I don't think, unless you've actually lived in a war, um, I don't think you can understand its horrifying impact that it has on you. And it's not just the impact that it has on you at the time, but it's, it's a long-term impact that really changes how you think about life and how you perceive everything. So um, I guess, yeah, being born in the region, displacement and war is not unfamiliar. We've all had to live through it. And, and you grow up in a kind of surrounding where everybody has lived through it and survived. So when you are in it and when you are in the same community, it's one thing. And then when you leave and realize, right, people had actual childhoods and you know, they went mm -hmm. to school without hiding under the desks. And, 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 and if they hear fireworks, they're not having nightmares and, and traumatic experiences from the sounds. And the, um, yeah, it's, it's, this is why I feel also my connection and work with Korea is, is very um, different in a transformative way because 
a lot of my Korean friends, at least their parents um, and a lot of the older generation have survived the Korean War and they understand what it means and they understand the horrifying effects of armed violence. Um, yeah, Korea had to go through awful history as well. Um, well, so much. I mean, it's still... Yeah, know, it's still divided. The, the 38th parallel of South and North Korea, you know, Western imperialism yep. creating another dictate there. Listeners, we will get to Palestine. We're joined by Dr. Lena Kolele, who, and she is an expert in Korea and, and in particular transnational social movements, anti-nuclear movements, anti-base movements, religious activism. So 10 years in Korea, Lena. So, I mean, we see South Korea and we go LG, Hyundai, you know, mm. theoretically a democracy, theoretically a modern Western nation, you know, uh, with a very high standard of living and stuff. Is that real or is it just a veneer? Look, uh, South Korea, I didn't know anything about South Korea before going to Korea. Um, I, I was really um, looking to go to China or Japan, okay. you know, from a Lebanese imagination. I didn't want to go to France, the colony where everybody, all my friends went to do their um, postgraduate in, Japan, in uh, France or in United States. And I wanted to go somewhere different. And while I was searching China and, and Japan, I came across the Korean embassy in Beirut. So I called them and I asked, can I, do you have any information about studying in Korea? And they invited me for a cup of tea and they were really shocked. They're like, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? Why would you want to study in Korea? <laughs> yeah. So then they told me that there's a scholarship. So I applied um, and it was really interesting because until that time, the embassy was kind of providing scholarships to a lot of connections with ambassadors and stuff. So I was kind of the only person who applied at that time who didn't have any connection to an embassy or a politician. Or So when I got the scholarship um, and I told my parents, um, <laughs> my parents were a bit shocked. And then my mom really encouraged me and she said, you should go and see what happens. And if you don't like it, you can always come back. But I still remember the the reaction from our neighbors and family members, you know, about, oh, why, you know, ask for knowledge mm. even in China. Do you mm. really, really literally have to send your daughter to China mm. um, to get <laughs> education? And I had to always correct everyone. This is not China. It's Korea. It's, not, it's a different country. So when I landed in Korea, I had no idea. I had never heard Korean before. I, I didn't have any information about it. So it was just an adventure. Um, and yeah, I the first the first stint I stayed there was about three and a half years. So I did um, a year of Korean language course and a master's in Korean studies at Yonsei University. And I, I started learning then that, you know, the area where I was staying in the dormitory, there was a protest every Friday that blocked all the streets. And, and, and so later then I started asking questions and started learning more about how strong the labor movement is in Korea um, and, and the history of that labor movement. So, and then I started learning more about the history and the culture and the religions. And yeah, I fell wow. in love with the place and, and made a lot of friends. You must have 10 years and a PhD. Before Lena was said, there's a saying, you know, education, education, even if you have to send your kids to China, just get them educated. And but it's <laughs> it's almost it's a joke about sending them to China. And here she was getting sent to Korea, <laughs> and having to correct them that Korea isn't China. So you you must have fallen in love with Korea to spend ten years and now a PhD. And do you head up a team or what's your work at ANU? What do you do there? 
So I just finished my PhD, which was a ethnography of a of a movement of of mm-hmm. a community, a religious community, um, who resists U.S. military bases in South Korea. So after I start learning about the history, mm. you learn that Korea, you know, for a long time was under Japanese colonialism, and in 1945, after Nagasaki and Hiroshima were bombed, um, Japan surrendered, and uh, basically the U.S. commanders that went to Tokyo divided the peninsula in two um, with a ruler, um, and that's still the 38th parallel. Even though in 1950s, when the war happened, the border changed and moved with the war, but it's largely still that same line that was drawn by the generals at that meeting in Tokyo. So when 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 Korea. Um, got liberated from the Japanese. There's a saying, my friends say, the Japanese flags went down and the American flags went up and Korea went into US military government for three years. And basically the project was to create a South Korean government that is separate from the North and that was very Mm. problematic. So there was a lot of resistance in South Korea to having that government because people knew once you formalize it, then you're practically dividing the country. So after three years of American um, military, U.S. military rule, the South Korean government was formed, and it was formed uh, basically by um, the support of the United States government. Um, and it was really interesting because when I started reading a lot of details, you know, most of the the South Korean, the first South Korean president, for example, was a, a was a Protestant elder in a church. And there was a lot of connections between church and state at that time. Most of the people that the U.S. government hired um, to run the country were um, students of U.S. missionaries, uh, Protestant missionaries who went to the United States, learned English, came back so they could communicate with them. So then I could start seeing all these connections between religion and politics um, and, and the place of Korea and the geopolitics and the history of the region. And how strong is the movement? I mean, we don't hear anything about it now. I mean, I know there's some a lot of anti-base stuff in Japan, and obviously in South Korea, but it's not very big, is it? Or is it very big? Actually, it's um, a lot more active than the Japanese anti-base movement. Really? Yes. A lot of... When I was in Korea, I had the chance to travel to Okinawa uh, and to meet a lot of Japanese activists who are resisting U.S. military bases in Japan. And they basically, many of them come to Korea to learn from Korean activists because one thing Korean activists and Japanese activists have in common is the steadfastness, the the fact that they don't give up. So Mm -hmm. the movement, for example, in the village that I was living in for my research, they basically, the movement started around 2007 roughly and it's still going on and we're talking about daily protests every single daily day daily protests yes every single day is there i mean i know in japan and i can't imagine it's not the same but there's a lot of trouble well i were anti-imperialists were over you the war was 70 years ago get out <laughs> but there's a lot of a lot of sexual violence a lot of alcohol fueled fights is that the same in South Korea as it is in Japan? Yeah, you mean from U.S. military? From the U.S. military. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely, definitely. Um, there's been a bit of curating to sort this issue a little bit. So it's interesting what's happened in Korea. So um, there was a lot of cases of rape and sexual violence that were horrifying. And these cases really triggered 
basically they people argue that they triggered the anti-us movement the anti-us basis movement because the women that were raped were horribly raped and it was really horrifying mm. so what's happened now throughout the years is that remember that us military bases have been there since 1945 that sex workers around military bases are no longer korean women so this is kind of a way of 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 uh, controlling that they are usually at the moment women who come from previous soviet countries from the philippines from parts of africa and they come on entertainment visas they are very well controlled through kind of similar to the kafala system where they they get sponsored by a bar and then the bar holds their passports and controls their movements and what they can access and what they can't access so they have a lot less force and and you hear less about these traumatic stories um and they are really under the radar in a sense but i've read an article not long ago uh, about you know korean sex workers saying that migrant sex workers come and they charge less than 50 dollars an hour and they can't afford to do that to live in seoul so so yeah there's been a, a lot of different steps by the us military to try to control the image and what's happening but every now and then there's always a story i mean a story of your soldiers coming out and having a fight with someone about a parking spot or the the big one of the big stories has been you know the south korean people have been fighting to return some of the land because the the pla- the lands where us military bases are built are prime real estate so there's the yongsan base for example which is in the middle of seoul it's it's prime location and people have been asking they want to they want some of this land back they want it back because they want to use it for parks and to give it back to the municipality so a few years ago the us military in south korea decided to build another mega city kind of military base in a town called pyongtaek and withdraw from yongsan and seoul and give back part of that land in the city um and then there was a lot of scandals about how much uh, chemicals and poisons have been thrown in the land and the cleaning of it will cost billions of dollars and the US military doesn't want to pay for it but also there's constant scandals about you know the US military poisoning the rivers uh, the the main river in Seoul there's been few films about that that are actually really good um films that are basically horror movies um you know with with the monster being the US military yeah sense. yeah 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 so so people have been resisting the presence of the US military since 1945 um but definitely there's been waves of you know increased movements and lower movements but it hasn't actually it hasn't ever stopped it's just you know depending on the intensity and what's happening at the time and and where is the issue but yeah i mean just that base in in jeju island since 2007 um yeah. every single day every single day since 2007 i mean it's a lot of yeah. days 15 years 6 or 7000 days in a row has that resistance taken any different form or just non-violent protest there's been it depends again on the issues and what's happening there's mm-hmm. because it's it's so long and because it's in different places it's taken so many different shapes there's resistance in art there's resistance in music there's mm-hmm. there's resistance violent resistance when it comes to grabbing of land so that that base in jeju island when the military wanted to to grab the land um they had to physically take it from protesters there's lobbying there's pressure there's 
literature, the, everything, everything you can think of. And it's very interesting, this specific base on Jeju Island, because of the very strong resistance, um, the U.S. military had to come up at some point and say, this is not a U.S. military base. This is a South Korean base. Um, but people know because the South Korean and force, status of forces agreement with the United States dictates that the U.S. government, the U.S. military is able to use all the bases that are on the peninsula and they and so people understand, you know, when there was when they were dredging the ocean to to make space to park submarines that the Korean Navy does not own. You know why they are, you know, you know which Navy is going to be using yeah. this this parking lot. So so resistance has been I can't it's everything in many places like the village where I where I conducted my research. There was even a community of people who started living together because of that movement, who support each other, who rely on farming to sustain themselves. You know, tangerine farming and and supporting villages in the in the island. There's creative resistance is plenty in South Korea, and it's really an inspiration. And what about the intersectionality with the Palestinians? When I used to introduce myself when I went to do fieldwork. Most of the time, uh, people introduced me or welcomed me as an Australian researcher, even though I said, you know, I grew up in Lebanon, I, I'm Lebanese, um, I have a Palestinian grandfather. But it was actually this specific community that I worked with who were more interested in my Palestinian history and background. And they asked me on several occasions to tell them more about Palestine, to tell them more about the war in Lebanon. They often had solidarity actions to support what's happening against uh, the movement against the what was happening in Gaza Strip. Um, they published articles from people who visited Palestine and wrote about what's happening because the the, a lot of people in the movement did not see their resistance as an isolated incident. They saw themselves as part of a larger anti-imperial, anti-military movement that is across really the whole planet. So they they were even creating solidarity links with, with people in Darwin resisting U.S. military bases, the, US military, the expansion of U.S. military base in Darwin. They worked with you know, they had solidarity movements, uh, actions um, against the war in Syria, in Yemen. They were, most of the people resisting U.S. military bases were at the forefront of the anti-Iraq war campaign mm -hmm. that was massive in Korea. Really? Absolutely massive. One of the biggest movements, the anti-Iraq war movement. People in that movement see themselves as part of a much larger picture. And Palestine is definitely in that picture and, and it is something that they, you know, when we're thinking about anti-militarism and anti-missiles and anti-army um, and, 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 and the military industrial complex and Israel often comes out as, a, as an example of how bad it gets, you know, when the state is basically suppressing everyone with their... When a state turns full fascist and militarized, yeah. yeah. So Lena, now you finished your PhD here at ANU. What's next? So I'm currently teaching. I'm teaching at Ritsumeikin University in Japan. I'm teaching a course on postcolonialism. I'm doing some part-time teaching at ANU, and I've actually also started a law degree last year. So I'm doing a juris doctor in law. Wow. Yeah. Um. There's <laughs> few projects in the pipeline. No, I tell you, listeners, you're not impressed by the caliber of brains that we can bring you each week. You really. <laughs> So the rest of us out here with just undergraduate degrees, how are we supposed to cope around people like you? Your undergraduate <laughs> degree, a couple of masters, a PhD, and now another PhD in law. 
Yeah, it's not a PhD. It's a Juris Doctor. So it's well, a coursework. Yes. Yeah. But it's a <laughs> it's JD. A you end up being a Doctor of Laws, yeah? <laughs> yes. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But it's, it is interesting, the intersection of law and social movements. Um, law is a very conservative field. Um, and 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 studying ethnography <laughs> and social movements before coming to law also gives you a whole other perspective on it. But yeah, I am I'm I'm doing some work. I had a postdoc fellowship with the Academy of Korean Studies. I'm working on a project looking at the Yemeni refugees who arrived on Jeju Island a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know no, from if Yemen. Listeners. Yes, from Yemen. Um, How did they get to uh, South Korea from Yemen? Yeah, so Jeju Island has a very interesting history, and the South Korean government have been trying to advertise it to the world as a Hawaii of of South Korea, which is ridiculous, both to the, you know, to Hawaii and its colonial history and Jeju, and now its militarization. So they've tried to do a lot of things to attract investments, and one of the things they try to do is to waive visas. So if you want to go to Jeju, you don't need a visa. But if you go to Seoul, you need a visa. So they lifted visa restrictions and um, a few hundred refugees, Yemeni refugees were stuck in um, Malaysia, you know, heard about this and they filled two airplanes uh, and 500 refugees landed <laughs> on Jeju Island. Good on them. Um, yeah. So I, at that time, I did a lot of work remotely from here just translating some documents and filling some forms and, and helping with interviews. And so I'm, I'm currently working on a project that follows up some of the people who, have, who were in Jeju for a while and the Yemenis who are still there and are now all over the country working really hard and making a living and trying to, you know, settle. Um, South Korea gave them uh, refugee no. status? No. No. So South Korea, South Korea and refugees is a very interesting story because South Korea and Japan when I first went to South Korea Nasir in 2005, I was one of like 100 Arabs. That was it. It was basically the ambassadors, the cooks of the embassies, and like few other students. And that was it. And I used to teach Arabic for senior government officials who used to learn, you know, Arabic in Syria or Jordan, and they want to work, they were still working for the foreign affairs. But if you go to Korea now, there's hundreds of thousands of Arabs, refugees, migrants, workers looking for a better life. And Japan and South Korea are notorious because they both, so they both signed the refugee convention. So if you become a refugee in Korea or Japan, you automatically have health rights, education rights, you get, you know, you can work rights, everything. So in order to avoid giving all of that, they deem you a non-refugee because the courts claim that armed violence and wars are not a reason to seek refuge. And this is very interesting. So I'm, I'm looking at the what, what intersection the of law. Okay. Because there are five reasons in the Refugee Convention that you need to be personally persecuted for your sexuality, religious belief, political affiliation. But it's, it's a very narrow reading of the convention and it's done on purpose by the courts in order to exclude people. So what happens is you end up out of the 500 Yemeni refugees who arrived in Jeju, I think less than 50 of them got refugee status and the rest are on one-year visas. So every year they have to apply again. They can't leave the country. So I've actually found out I was in, in Korea just earlier in the year and I found out that many of them have already left because they couldn't stay there without having family around, without, you know, not being able to leave. And yeah, so a lot of them decided to leave 
And they got refugee status somewhere else or? Some of them went to Turkey. Some of them, you know, they, they went wherever. It's hard to track the movements sometimes. And maybe it is better for us not scholars not to track because we don't want to be helping yeah. states. You know, But it is, it, they, a lot of people are trying to make Korea home. And and uh, and many refugees that I met are, you know, speak Korean fluently now and are working in in factories. And so, my new project that I'm I've been working on post PhD has been the Arab refugees in in, in South Korea and all and Northeast Asian countries, um, and looking at the intersection of law um, and the and and the refugee journeys and and what how they are surviving and coping and. Um, Right. So, how much longer has that project got to go? Um, so, I've st- I've started working on it really early on during my PhD, and it's kind of ongoing. But officially, um, it started this December uh, last December, so it it has a year. Uh, so until December, okay. um, hopefully we'll get you on uh, sometime next year to give us a, a rundown on how that an went. update. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in that region because as much as we don't know much about Korea, Korea doesn't know much about us. So there's a lot of education to be done and, and um, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in that space. Fantastic. Dr. Lena Kolelet, who is a pelbo and a fantastic, uh, another prime example of just how wonderful uh, pelbos are. <laughs> Lena, thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks, Nasser. Thank you so much. A pleasure, a pleasure. Listeners, thanks for listening. Share the podcast, tell your friends, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.